This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised. Cavalry Audio. I'm Carolyn Osorio, and this is my new podcast, The Murder Chronicles. You're listening to episode 23, Playing with Fire. Titillating, that's what it felt like. Their fantasies had become real. The married couple's shared delights felt empowering. They were so close, they could separate. Jealousy and envy were other people's problems. They stood together forever, which meant they were free to shed their skins of monogamy. And whatever normal was, suddenly their ordinary lives felt extraordinary. Heading for a night of adventure, who would they meet? It was too delicious to think about. At the door, there was no special handshake to gain entry, no dress code or type, but everyone there had one thing in common. They wanted to play. This married couple has been swinging for a few years, both of them sharing in the delights of what some might see as forbidden fruit playing with fire. And on this night, it's not long before small talk becomes intimate, and suddenly, instead of two, there are three standing. Another man enters the picture, and it becomes a sort of psychological foreplay. Each is anticipating the consummation of the attraction, the amped up adrenaline, thudding heartbeat, and let's face it, the somewhat salacious nature of what's about to happen between the three of them only increases their excitement. But who will make the first move? How will this threesome begin? In the end, human nature wins the day. No words are expressed. The woman in the center of the triangle makes unmistakable eye contact, raises her eyebrows expectantly as the men follow her into the bedroom. And suddenly, the game is afoot. In the beginning, it had been hot, erotic, the swinger lifestyle which had made absolutely perfect sense to the married couple who were just looking to spice things up because nothing would ever come between them. It was just sex until one day it wasn't. Suddenly, it became crystal clear to the third wheel as he watched the other two who were so caught up in each other in that moment of intimacy, they forgot to hide how they felt. In that moment, the man knew that his wife wasn't playing. It was love, and it had nothing to do with him. The thrill and adrenaline had been replaced with jealousy and rage as he realized, too late, that three is a crowd, after all. Vanessa and Ken McBride were in their early 30s. The two had been friends since they were 13 years old, they became infatuated in high school, and by 2008 they'd been married for 14 years, and they had an 11-year-old son. The couple lived in Alger, Washington, a hamlet roughly an hour and a half from Seattle. Alger is too small to be considered a city. According to a 2010 census, there were 403 people living in Alger. It was basically a midway point between Seattle and Vancouver, BC. Alger is flanked by larger cities like Bellingham, which is home to Western Washington University, and then there's Burlington and Cedra Woolley. The Hamlet's big claim to fame is its popular Skagit Speedway, which attracts people from all over. 
Basically, Alger's a tiny dot on a map, but like so many patches of green in the Pacific Northwest, it offers peace and quiet woodland surrounded by little lakes and forests to explore. Before we get started, I wanted to share with you how I came to this story. A listener reached out to me suggesting that I cover the case. She lived in the area where it happened, knew the people involved, and was touched by the devastation that such a senseless murder of a beloved figure in this small community and the circumstances behind this heinous crime resulted in cruel gossip that traveled like wildfire, not just locally, but nationally as well. The salacious details that poured out of the investigation like a sieve for a time overshadowed the truly tragic loss of an amazing human being. But for her, really at the core, there was a deeper story that had nothing to do with the swinger lifestyle. It was about a love triangle that went horribly wrong by consenting adults. In this episode, we will talk about the swinger lifestyle. And if you're unfamiliar, it basically is where couples in a relationship give each other permission to quote unquote play, which is sort of a code word for having sexual contact with other couples or individuals with their partner's consent. This playing can happen while both partners are present, but also separately. For many, an open marriage or partnership might seem exotic, out of bounds with what some would consider a quote-unquote normal committed relationship, but it really isn't that out of the ordinary. One of the most interesting things about any studies I've seen about swingers is that they look average. <laughs> they go to church, they have kids, you know, they mow their lawn. <laughs> I mean, it's not like you could ever, you know, spot the person, uh, you know, who's, oh, that person's gonna be a swinger. No way. They're not um, unusual. I would say in the early studies, and I haven't read any late, uh, they tend to be more Caucasian than any other group. So I don't know if there's a, some cultural things that differentiate, or if I just don't know the, <laughs> the data about other, about other racial groups. But, um, but I guess the most important thing is that they're probably pretty normal in every other way, except that they're you know sexually adventurous and willing to uh, make this not just an experience, but even a lifestyle. That's Dr. Pepper Schwartz. She's devoted her life to furthering the fields of intimacy and sexuality. She's an acclaimed author, researcher, television personality, and a professor of sociology at the University of Washington. And she says it's really hard to know exactly how many couples participate in the swinger lifestyle in the United States. But studies have put the number at around 4%. That's one couple in 25. I think it's impossible to know. I mean, the only thing we would know are people who are, went to organized swingers clubs, but that doesn't mean people, and we wouldn't even know that. I mean, they're not going to say, here's our records. Here's the, they're not going to tell you what the denominator is. And some of these things are very informal. Two couples decide to um, switch partners or watch each other have sex or whatever. I have no idea. I cannot even hazard a guess. And as we move through this episode... You'll hear from Dr. Schwartz. She'll help us navigate through the practice of open marriage and how it relates to Vanessa and Ken McBride's relationship. By 2008, Vanessa and Ken had been swinging for a few years. Now, I mentioned earlier that playing can happen either together with other partners or separately, but there are rules. If one partner plays with someone without the other partner's consent, that's considered to be cheating. So both Ken and Vanessa, as a part of their playing, had multiple sex partners over the course of the two or three years that they had engaged in the swinger lifestyle. Here's Ken McBride talking about that evolution during an interview with a detective. Well, at first, 
you know, three years ago, it was, a, it was, it was exciting and weird. And Ken and Vanessa were members of an adult website where you can meet other swingers and chat with them online. The website consisted of an open forum for both group chats and then individual conversations between two people. For several years, the couple had been very open about their sex partners with each other. It was sort of like they would go to each other, say who they wanted to partner up with, and then they would get the consent of the other person. But something changed. In February 2008, Ken emailed one of Vanessa's swinging partners, who she regularly chatted with online, who Ken had given her the green light to play with. At the time, Vanessa had no idea that Ken was accessing her computer and going through her archived chats. Ken had sent this partner a chat telling him to back off. Ken also followed the back off comment with sort of a threat, saying it would be a very bad idea if he told Vanessa that he'd reached out to him. Vanessa had no idea that her husband had hacked into her account without her consent and that he'd sent this message. But she would find out soon enough. According to online chats, on March 17, 2008, Ken became aware that Vanessa wanted to play with a man named Jeremy Scully. Ken and Vanessa had met Jeremy on the Swinger site, and he lived about 15 minutes from their home in Alger. Now, Jeremy was a popular 38-year-old track coach at Ferndale High School, and he was also a substitute teacher. He was really well known in the community as a super good guy, and he coached at Western Washington University too. Jeremy was described as an all-American guy, and he had a love of pole vaulting. He was a respected teacher and beloved coach, but he kept his private life to himself. Many people didn't know that he was a member of that adult website that helped connect swingers to people who were seeking sexual partners. Jeremy wasn't married. A few days after finding out that Vanessa wanted to have sex with Jeremy, Ken gave consent for her to play with him. So Vanessa invited Jeremy over to their house when Ken was away for the night on business. After the first sexual encounter around March 17th, it sounds like Vanessa and Jeremy really spent a lot of time together, something that Ken wasn't happy about. And he told Vanessa that he wanted her to take a break from Jeremy. On March 26th, Vanessa would send a message to Jeremy saying that Ken wanted her to take a break from playing with him. And this sort of rubbed Vanessa the wrong way. By then, she knew about her husband hacking into her computer and sending that back-off message to one of her previous sexual partners, and she was worried that he had also sent the same kind of message to Jeremy. Ken and Vanessa would have a conversation about it in their own online chat. She'd asked him if he'd sent a back-off message without her knowledge to Jeremy. Ken told Vanessa that he hadn't, but he did say that he'd become unglued if Jeremy ever tried to influence their relationship. A couple of days later, on March 28th, Ken would hack into his wife's laptop again, even though she'd changed her password since the last time he did back in February. He left a message for her. He created a file named, Baby, I love you with all my heart and soul. Inside the file, there was a letter. Here, he apologizes for logging onto her computer without her permission, but he did note that she'd changed her password since. Clearly, he accessed it again. He also says in the letter that he didn't contact Jeremy, saying, quote, It would probably put me into a very bad place I might not recover from, adding, I know you would really like to know what put me over the edge. It was the look in your eye when you were telling me about your first night with Jeremy. 
I am feeling like a third wheel sitting in the corner and have for months. The thing with Jeremy was just bad timing, I guess. And the condom issue was a thing. In this letter, he would go on to say that he actually looked for the evidence that a condom had been used between Jeremy and Vanessa, but couldn't find one. He added, I am feeling hurt by the one I have always trusted with everything, as you have trusted me, until I broke that trust a few weeks ago. We'll be back after a quick break. Here, Ken's referring to the previous hack into Vanessa's laptop, where he told that sex partner to back off. Dr. Schwartz discusses the role of attachment in relationships and how it's important to honor that. The part of me that's a, a sociologist is, or a social psychologist is sort of looking at the attachment literature and thinking about people who are anxiously attached versus securely attached versus ambivalently attached. And I would say if your partner is ambivalently attached or both of you, that is, you, know, you like a lot of emotional distance. You may love your partner, but you don't want to feel too intertwined. Um, you may love them almost like a brother or sister, but not passionately. Those people might do well. And if you're securely attached, which is, hey, we can do what we want. I feel secure that this person will never stop loving me and vice versa. And if they do, I can handle it. But if you're anxiously attached, you're jealous, you're, you're part of it is you're, you are worried that someone will live, leave you or that you won't be the best, that the person be a better lover, they'll love you more than, they'll find someone else who loves them or they love more than you do. Anybody anxious who is insecure in any way, this is a really bad idea. Clearly, Ken's jealousy is becoming an issue. It's important to give context to his discussion of the condom he'd been looking for after Vanessa and Jeremy's sexual encounter when he was away on that business trip. It's really significant for a couple of reasons. Apparently, Vanessa had a medical condition that put her life at risk if she were to get pregnant again. And this medical condition also prohibited her from taking birth control. As a result, Ken got a vasectomy. Obviously, having sex with multiple partners, it's vital to have safe sex. So I'm sure he wanted to know that Vanessa and Jeremy used a condom. But I think the underlying issue here is that Ken is really worried as he frantically searches for this condom and doesn't find it, is that it's confirmation of his darkest fear. That the sex between Vanessa and Jeremy has gone beyond swingers playing. It suggests a higher level of intimacy. And this realization amps up Ken's paranoia regarding the true nature of their relationship. Dr. Pepper Schwartz. Emotions are not always predictable. Once you open up the marriage, it may or may not be able to sustain it. If it seems like the first time or sometimes we're upsetting and unexpectedly arouse jealousy or insecurity in you, that may be a good time right there to stop. You know, you didn't have to make a contract for forever except in the marriage, and even that doesn't work all the time. So, you know, be strong enough to step away from it right in the beginning if this isn't your cup of tea. And even as it goes on, if it's if it starts to change either you or your partner's feelings, you know, the marriage should always come first, even if it's under different norms than most of us have. The fact is, if you're if you made those vows and maybe your vows didn't include didn't include monogamy, so be it. People can make their own understandings. Um, but the fact is you owe each other a lot as partners and you should try to protect that when you see it being endangered. If Ken had went to Vanessa and shared his concerns about swinging and maybe that it wasn't such a good fit for their relationship, would it have changed the outcome? We'll never know. According to the investigator's timeline, the following weekend, 
After Ken had created that file on Vanessa's laptop, the one that was titled, Baby, I love you with all my heart and soul. They all doubled down, the three of them. Ken, Vanessa, and Jeremy attended a swingers event in Portland, Oregon. That's more than a four and a half hour drive from Alger. And when they got there, partygoers would later say that Ken appeared to be glaring at Jeremy and Vanessa for most of the night. A week later on April 12th, there was another local swinger party where once again, all three were in attendance and witnesses would later say that again, Ken was glaring at Vanessa and Jeremy. It was so disturbing that one person at the party went to Ken and asked if he was okay. Around April 16th, Vanessa and Jeremy's whirlwind relationship really intensified online and they chatted about their love for each other and they also revealed that they wanted to have a baby together. Vanessa shares with Jeremy that she's feeling hopeful about becoming pregnant and is actively researching how to mitigate the dangers if she were to become pregnant again. In spite of all this turmoil going on with Ken and the glares and his accessing Vanessa's computer, his seething jealousy that was obvious at these two separate events, Jeremy and Ken and Vanessa would engage in a threesome on April 17th. The swinger lifestyle had made absolutely perfect sense to Vanessa and Ken just a few years before, but now their marriage had careened off the rails. An undeniable symptom of this was when they were all in bed together. Suddenly, it became crystal clear to the third wheel as he watched the other two, who were so caught up in each other in that moment of intimacy, they forgot to hide how they felt. Later, investigators would watch this home video, and they would write, quote, In the video, Jeremy and Vanessa are completely involved with one another, while Ken is participating, but most times, he is excluded from the intimacy. Just a day after that home video is made, on April 18th, Ken finds out that he lost his job. He'd only been working at the company for a week. But prior to his termination, he had become argumentative with a co-worker and actually came up off his chair saying if he was upset, they would know it and everyone would know it. Ken losing his job is, is just a huge blow because even before that, the couple is struggling financially. Now he has even more time on his hands to hack into Vanessa's computer, trolling her online chat conversations, and he discovers on April 23rd, not even a week after that disastrous threesome, where Ken is basically watching his wife make love to Jeremy right in front of his face, an act that he is absolutely not a part of. Ken finds out that Vanessa, via another online chat, is finalizing plans to meet both Jeremy and a female friend at a Seattle bar something she's not told Ken about. In that chat, Vanessa says, quote, I only have $20 I could spend on parking and drinks, but oh well, Ken can just deal. Vanessa mentioning having only $20 to spend on parking and drinks is insight into their crumbling financial situation and the stress that goes along with the worry and anxiety that Ken has now lost his job, the pressures are mounting, and the tension in the relationship is already running high. But now, as he was accessing her computer again on April 23rd, and he reads that online chat with friends, where she adds, quote, By the way, Ken knows I'm unhappy and close to leaving. He figured it all out on his own and asked me. She says that she's considering leaving Ken for Jeremy. It's obvious that there's a lot going on in this marriage that had nothing to do with swinging or Jeremy. 
first of all, I would just say that this guy sounds like a very unstable guy under an enormous amount of pressure anyhow. I wouldn't think he's typical of, uh, of swingers or we'd see a lot more murders, you know? <laughs> so, I mean, he's atypical in the fact that this this is not a common part of a, of a murder biography, which isn't to say that, you know, sexuality doesn't have its dangerous elements to it because people are aroused and they act often in bizarre ways, not just in swinging, but, you know, a spurned suitor. I mean, sometimes the most dangerous thing a woman can do is date the wrong guy. So, you know, we, uh, we have to know that our sexual and romantic system often creates um, people of, of passions that spill over in, in violent ways. So we have to be careful about that. In a police report, investigators would say that citizen witnesses were told by Ken that he and Vanessa had gotten into a heated argument late in the evening of April 23rd. And the pressure continues to mount. On April 24th, early in the morning, Ken gets a phone call from a collection agency about their past due bills. Later in the day, another call from the mortgage company telling them that their house has been foreclosed on. So Vanessa and Ken lived in Alger, about 17 minutes away from the college town of Bellingham, where Vanessa worked and Jeremy lived. So on the morning of April 24th, a Thursday, Vanessa stops by Jeremy's apartment before work. Ken has no idea that she did this. When Vanessa arrives, Jeremy says that Ken had called him asking if he would come over at 10 a.m. that morning to help. Ken wants to surprise Vanessa by doing some work on the roof. Vanessa's like, well, okay, if you want to help, you can, but you don't have to. And Jeremy tells Vanessa that he wanted to help Ken, that during this conversation, Ken had revealed to him something that caused him a lot of shame. He started talking about one time that he tried to choke Vanessa when he'd lost his temper. Ken told Jeremy that he'd never told anyone about that before because he'd been so ashamed. And that morning, Jeremy told Vanessa that he wanted to help Ken work through it and believe that talking about it might help him. Vanessa left Jeremy's apartment that morning at around 8.40 a.m., and she made plans to speak with Jeremy later that evening after work. Vanessa tried calling Ken during the day to check in and was surprised when he didn't answer. She finally texted him, saying that she'd be off work at around 2. At around 2.10 in the afternoon, Vanessa gets a call from Ken. But it's strange. Because he asks her if she can pick up some stuff at the store and then says he needs a ride, that he's walking home after a hike and he was tired. Vanessa was concerned. This request was way out of the ordinary for Ken. He just wasn't the type of person just to go for an impromptu walk. But she did what he asked. Later that night, she began to get worried. She couldn't get a hold of Jeremy. It wasn't like him to not text her. The next morning, Friday, April 25th, the Ferndale High School athletic director was concerned. Jeremy had been a no-show that Thursday afternoon for track. And now on Friday, he wasn't at school in the morning and he wasn't answering calls. And so he called the police and he told them that Jeremy's very dependable. He had planned to be at practice on Thursday. He had planned to be at practice on Friday and to pick up some keys for a track meet on Saturday. So it's very unlike him not to show up. Officers from the Bellingham Police Department went to Jeremy's apartment for a welfare check, and he wasn't there. There was no sign of struggle at Jeremy's place, and investigators learned pretty quickly that Jeremy wasn't the type of person who just disappeared without telling anyone, and he didn't have a history of depression. 
Finding this beloved coach became a high priority, and it wasn't long before first responders, family, and friends organized to find Jeremy Scully. By now, Vanessa was really scared that she hadn't heard from Jeremy. Not only had Jeremy and Vanessa made plans to speak with each other later that night on Thursday, but they also had plans to travel to Seattle together on Friday. It was weird that Jeremy hadn't checked in with her and he wasn't answering his phone. Something else was eating away at Vanessa. She knew that Jeremy had been asked by Ken to help him with the roof as a surprise for Vanessa. She felt sick inside as she wondered, could her husband be the last person to see Jeremy before he disappeared? That Friday, Vanessa had some chats with friends and she would tell them that she was concerned that Ken had done something to Jeremy. Early that Friday morning, she wrote to a friend in an online chat that she'd been trying to get a hold of Jeremy and that he hadn't replied. She said, I stopped in and Jeremy tells me that Ken is asking him to come over at 10 that morning, yesterday. He says they're going to work on a surprise for me, something to do with the house. I said, well, okay, if you want to, you can help him, but know that you don't have to. She also talks about the strange behavior of picking up Ken on a walk. She says, he calls me around 2.10, asking if I can get him some stuff at the store, and then asks if I can pick him up, because he'd gone for a walk, and it was too far, and he didn't want to walk back. This is completely out of character for him. And now, here is the worried part, I have not been able to get a hold of Jeremy since then. Later in the afternoon on Friday, she visited the home of a couple. They were her close friends. This couple had lived with her and Jeremy for a year or two, and the couple had witnessed firsthand Ken's temper. They had seen him trying to choke Vanessa. Remember that choking incident that Ken had revealed to Jeremy? The moment of anger that Jeremy had said to Vanessa that he wanted to help Ken work through? Vanessa confided to the couple that although she had told police about Jeremy's plans to help her husband on Thursday morning, she hadn't yet told them about Ken's call later that day, just after two, to come pick him up on the side of the road near an area known as Squires Lake on the same day that Jeremy had gone missing. In the days following Jeremy's disappearance, search and rescue teams were fully engaged with a helicopter overhead, divers who were trolling local waterways, and bloodhounds on the hunt to catch a whiff of Jeremy's scent. Their searches bore fruit. On Saturday, they found his gray Nissan parked along Lake Samish. The passenger door was open and the keys were still in the ignition. Search and rescue dogs were all over the vehicle, but they didn't detect a scent to track. They now had the car, but where was Jeremy? Detectives began to piece together the days leading up to Jeremy's disappearance. They knew, based on Vanessa's call, that Ken had invited Jeremy over to their house to help with repairs. When Ken was interviewed, he told police that he'd been home all day that Thursday, working on his resume and looking for a job on the internet. He said that Vanessa had gotten home at around three in the afternoon. He didn't say anything about his request to have Vanessa pick him up. At this time, Vanessa hadn't told detectives that she had picked up Ken near Squires Lake Trailhead, more than two miles from where Jeremy's car had been found. Three days after Jeremy went missing, hikers on Blanchard Mountain found a body, 15 feet down an embankment, about 75 yards off the Samish Overlook Road. The body didn't have any identification, and his shirt was pulled over his face. But once they pulled down the shirt, it was clear that it was Jeremy Scully, shot in the head multiple times, that he'd been murdered. 
The day that Jeremy's body was found, Ken was brought in for another interview. Ken would tell investigators that he'd chatted with Jeremy online and had made arrangements for him to come over and help with the roof that Thursday, that this chat had happened at around 9.30 a.m. Jeremy said that he was going to get dressed, gas up, and then head over. The audio's a little rough, but here's a detective asking Ken about his plans with Jeremy. Either I am to you in phone call or sent you a text message that said he's no work today, going to get gas, changing clothes, and I'll be right down. Something to that effect? Mm -hmm. Okay. And so you were kind of anticipating that he would arrive um, at your place 10, 10 30. Somewhere in that range, yeah. Okay. During that period of time, you um, decided that you were going to go over to the um, smoke shop on the reservation um, and pick up some cigarettes. I drove your truck over there and picked up just one pack of cigarettes and didn't really have any communications with anyone in particular, although you were looking for somebody, I think, about some job or something that you might have mentioned. I was looking for somebody to talk to. Oh, okay. Yeah. I didn't see anyone, and then we turned back home around 11, 11, 15. Yeah. Police were able to confirm that the last known sighting of Jeremy being alive was him gassing up at Costco at 10.01 a.m., Investigators had learned that Jeremy was the type of person who, when he got a tank full of gas, he would reset his odometer. So when they found his car, his odometer reading was important. There were 43 miles on it, which they interpreted as, from the moment he got the gas, his car had been driven 43 miles. More Murder Chronicles after the break. Ken explained to the police that he'd been expecting Jeremy to arrive at 10.30, which was strange to the investigators when they sort of scratched their heads as he explained that on that Thursday morning, he left his house at around 10.30, the same time that he expected Jeremy to come over, and he said that he went to buy a pack of cigarettes at the Skagit Valley Casino. He said that he went through the drive through window of the tobacco shack. Ken also said that he hung around the casino hoping to run into a friend and that he was back home at 11.30 and that Jeremy just never showed up. But there were problems with this story. Why would you leave your house at the exact time you were expecting someone you invited over to show up? Another problem? There wasn't any CCTV footage of Ken's vehicle at the casino. And another detail, they don't sell individual packs of cigarettes at the drive-thru tobacco shack, only cartons. If you wanted to buy a single pack of cigarettes, you'd have to go to the main casino. Ken's response to that was, there was a long line and only one cashier, and so I left. But the CCTV video didn't support that either. By this time, they'd done their research into Ken McBride, and they knew about the family's dire financial situation. It's anecdotal, but it wouldn't make sense for him to buy cigarettes from the casino when a gas station was just a quarter mile away from his house. Why would he drive four miles to the casino when gas prices were high? And they wondered if Jeremy didn't show up, why didn't he ever call him to see if he was coming over? Ken said that he just thought that Jeremy had been called into work as a sub and didn't want to bother him. He says that he just went back to his internet job search and then got frustrated with that and decided to go for a walk to Squires Lake, which was around 2.7 miles from his house. As they were talking to Ken, other detectives were talking with Vanessa, who finally came clean about picking Ken up near Squires Lake Trailhead at around 3 because he was having issues with his shin splints. On April 29th, bloodhounds were brought out again. This time, though, they had the dog smell Ken's shoes that he'd been wearing on Thursday. Remember for that walk? They started around where Jeremy's car was found, 
let them smell the shoes, and instantly they were directing their handlers to Lake Samish. Divers were called out, and about 50 feet offshore, they came up with personal items that belonged to Jeremy Scully. The data from Ken's cell phone revealed that his phone was in the sector where Jeremy's car and body were located on April 24th. In an interview, detectives would ask Ken if they did a gunshot residue test on his hands, would they find residue? And he said that they might because he'd been handling a change container that had ammunition in it. Investigations, you know, into gunshot residue. Um, and I know you've mentioned to me that you might have come across some bullets or something in your change thing today. I don't really know that that's sufficient enough to, to, to result in a positive test. But, you know, I have to ask you, what's going to happen if, if someone uh, were to come in this room right now and administer, you know, a gunshot residue test on your hands? Would it show that in the, in the last 72 hours that you've, that you've fired or possessed a firearm? I don't know. I don't know if the test would say that. Well, you know the answer, Ken. You know the answer. You know the answer regardless of the test. In a search of Ken and Vanessa's home, one of his guns was unaccounted for. When they asked him about it, Ken said that he'd sold the gun two weeks before for some cash. Even so, during this search, police would find ammunition that was consistent with the weapon used to murder Jeremy. They also found photos of Ken shooting what appeared to be a 22 rifle with friends. Ken's buddies in those photos would be questioned, and they would confirm that that gun belonged to him. A Washington State Patrol crime lab would match bullet fragments found in Scully's head with bullets found in Ken and Vanessa's home. And remember the 43 miles on Jeremy's odometer when they found his car? Jeremy had gassed up at Costco at around 10.01 that morning? and they believed that he filled his tank and reset his odometer, well, investigators would drive from that Costco to Ken and Vanessa's home, then to Blanchard Mountain, where Jeremy's body was found, and to Lake Samish. All were within the 43 miles. Investigators attempted to do a forensic scouring of Ken's computer, and they found out that he'd wiped it along with his chat logs on April 27th, because he said, quote, I have vented to a few people, and I didn't want any of it taken out of context. Detectives would say from the very beginning that Ken became a person of interest. What we're faced with is, is that we're faced with, you know, an awful flurry of facts that we have to address. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we're not interested in, in addressing it in, in a character assass- assassination way. We're interested in addressing it in, you know, kind of, uh, you know, see if we can put, put ourselves in, in the same situation that you might have been and, and try to get a sense as to how, how, that, how that situation could blow up, how that situation could push someone who doesn't have, you know, any criminal history to speak of um, to get involved in something where some, someone else could have, could have gotten hurt. The detective is referring to Ken's open marriage. By then, they had accessed all the chats. They knew about Ken's increasing jealousy, the money issues, the threatening behavior. And of course, they'd seen that home video with Ken, Vanessa, and Jeremy, where it was clear to those watching that Ken had not been having fun. He looked more like a wounded animal than a proactive sexual partner. And here, the other detective in that interrogation tries to get Ken to talk about his feelings of jealousy toward Jeremy. After 11 or 12 years of marriage, how do you turn the emotions off? Uh, this is my wife, this is me, this is my soulmate. How do you turn that off and, and, and watch her be physically involved with another man? Not another woman, but another man. 
The detective tries to bait Ken with the obvious, that his wife was in love with another man and was planning to leave him for Jeremy. But I don't think Vanessa's in any kind of uh, mindset where she's going to be ready to break off or, st- or walk away from any relationship with Jeremy. And I think that I think you think that too. And you know, and therein I think is develops really the rub. That this is all it's a, it's a panacea to think that we're all going to sit down and talk about this. Um, when, as I understand it, Vanessa and Jeremy walk through the park together, holding hands and and stop and kiss, and Jeremy's Jeremy's comments to Vanessa are, you know, if I had met you 13 years ago, I'd never let go of you. That that doesn't sound like somebody who is interested in sharing Vanessa, you know, not even with her husband. And, you know, I have to be concerned. If I can find out what those conversations were, then I have to assume you know what those conversations were. And I'll tell you, I don't know anything, you know, about playing or swimming, but I'll tell you, when it comes down to just core man feelings, for lack of a better term, that's going to be a threat. That isn't going to be something we're going to sit down and be able to talk talk out. And and that's my that's my concern. And finally, in trying to get a confession out of Ken, they just tried to appeal to his sense of justice and doing the right thing. You decide what you what it is you you want the record to to show in terms of what the exchange was. There are no DNA processes um, that are going to help us with this. There are no fingerprinting. There's no, there's no shoe examination or shooting comparisons. There's no blood shot residue tests. Um, there, there, frankly, are not even any um, closed circuit TV um, monitors that uh, are stationed around various roads here and, and around Fiskegee County that will ever be able to tell us what took place. What was the conversation that happened up on that mountain? Don't tell us. Don't tell us all about the who done it. But that no one and there's no piece of there's no piece of evidentiary tool that, that's going to fill in that blank. That blank. That that is really critical as it goes to the character of people. And and I, I really believe that that's all this is about. I told you that already. This is about this is about your character. This is about Jeremy's character. I really believe that Jeremy misstepped and an overstepped. Investigators wouldn't get a confession that day. At the time, they had a largely circumstantial case. They didn't have a murder weapon, didn't have fingerprints or DNA that connected Ken to Jeremy's murder. They didn't have the physical evidence at the time to support an arrest for murder. Ultimately, detectives would have to cut Ken loose. But that didn't mean that they were going to let go of the case. And neither was the community. In fact, not long after Jeremy Scully's murder, Investigators got wind of the whispers around town that Vanessa was pregnant. On May 11th, they asked her if she was pregnant, and she denied it. Remember, Ken had gotten a vasectomy, and given the fact that according to the chats exchanged between Jeremy and Vanessa before his murder, they talked about having a baby together. On July 31st, detectives would confirm with Vanessa that she was pregnant and that her due date was January 9th, 2009. Investigators tracked back 40 weeks, which would put conception on or around April 11th. The only sexual encounters Vanessa had during that time was with Ken and Jeremy. 
Even though Ken had been questioned at least four times within a month of Jeremy's disappearance and murder, he wouldn't be arrested for the first-degree murder of Jeremy Scully until a year later. Ten days before the murder trial was set to begin, Kenneth McBride admitted that he was guilty of murdering Jeremy Scully. He'd made a plea deal with the prosecution. After Kenneth McBride's defense attorney found out that prosecutors had a surprise witness, Ken's jail cellmate had told investigators that he had confessed to killing Jeremy Scully. His cellmate was in for multiple felony drug dealing and got a plea agreement to testify. On top of that, prosecutors had 70 witnesses waiting to testify. As a result of the plea, Ken McBride received a 23-year sentence. A few hours after Kenneth McBride had admitted that he was guilty of murdering Jeremy Scully, Scully's family issued this statement. Quote, We are pleased that today Kenneth McBride has accepted responsibility for Jeremy's murder and admitted his guilt. While nothing can change the loss suffered by Jeremy's family, friends, and the athletes he coached, the fact Mr. McBride will face the punishment he deserves for committing this senseless and cowardly act is some comfort to those of us who knew and loved Jeremy. We would like to express our thanks and appreciation to the members of the law enforcement community and to the Skagit County Prosecutor's Office for their efforts and This case reminded me of when I was in college, when I was excited to take a human sexuality class. I had to wait a while because it was really a popular class, partly because everyone thought it would be an easy A, but also students like myself were curious. And all these years later, at the University of Washington, my alma mater, it's still a super popular class. This curiosity was something I chatted with Dr. Schwartz about. Well, this wasn't around around non-monogamy, but remember uh, Fifty Shades of Grey? Everybody talked about what a terrible writing it was, but the fact is it sold more than Harry Potter, more than any of the really big popular things, and more than the Bible for a few years, you know? Maybe that's not such a surprise, but nonetheless, the fact is not everybody wanted bondage and discipline or modest to major sadism, but they were turned on by the kinky relationship of this couple, which over some different books ends up, you know, into, you know, happily sexually satisfied without all of the whips and chains. But the fact is we were all curious and titillated. And I think you're right. People are curious. And not only that, sexual arousal isn't squeaky clean. Not everybody's idea of a good time is the missionary position, uh, et cetera, um, or for various positions. Lord knows what every, I mean, I shouldn't say Lord knows. I know a lot about what people do in their bedrooms because I study it and it's, it's or, or even more, they have fantasies they don't want to activate, but they do like to live in, you know, in, you know, in the sense in their head. So, yeah. Before I let you go, I wanted to remind you to check out the bonus episodes which are available after each episode. Here my producer Brandon Morgan and I discuss the case in more depth. And you can bet Brandon and I will have a lot to say after this case. And as always, thanks for listening. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death 
in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games.